bust the windows out your car And know it didn't mend my broken heart I'll probably always have these ugly scars But right now I don't care about that part I bust the windows out your car After I saw you laying next to her I didn't wanna, but I took my turn. I'm glad I did it, cause you had to learn. <laughs> Ooh, she held it together. She hey, did it. Good job, <laughs> sis. Ooh, good job, girl. You know, I loved it. It was a little shake, a little bit, you know. Miss Jasmine gives some vocals. She but, does. Um, she slays some vocals. Song. She I slays vocals, yeah. So good. <laughs> I was just talking about how Jasmine hasn't been on tour for hotels. And I'm like, I need to see that live. <laughs> <laughs> when did that album come out? Was it? Uh, January. Do you know when the hotel? Of this yeah. year? Mm-hmm. I mean, we kind of, you know, there's that little pandemic thing that might have kept it from, you know, kept mama inside. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I bet she's going to start touring with that. I, um... Yeah, I have a good friend of the show who's super stands Miss Sun, Jasmine Sullivan. Um, but, and I like that, whatever her second album was, the one that has like Masterpiece and a couple others. Oh, it's Stanley. I don't know what yeah. we're talking about. Yeah, say, say With Stanley. Name. Yes, yes, I think that one. Um, Deborah don't know what we're talking about. She's yeah, like, I need to get, I need to get up on Jimmy's Jasmine Sullivan. I, I'm a little bit behind on her. I know she, I know she slays though vocally. I just, I don't know a lot of her songs, honestly. What's your favorite um Jasmine Sullivan song, Jason? I I do like I, I forget the one that Stanley was on, but that album is just incredible. So Stanley mm. is definitely a top mm. choice. Okay. Um, okay. Love it, love it, love it. But that one she does a an acoustic version of it that's like um shit, what was it? Oh, you about to get some you about to get some vocals? Yeah. I'm, I'm I actually yes, why not? Let's do it. I Do it, to, <laughs> yeah, girl. Let me think. Let me think. What's um, mm-hmm. lost one? That was a mm-hmm. oh. <laughs> you know when you lost one. You know when you lost. You fuck different people. Uh-huh. I don't know all the words, but that <laughs> that song. I swear, it it gets me in my feelings because it feels so real and it's so honest and. Like that is the one song I'm waiting to hear live. So, I wonder why do you think um, why do you think Jasmine's not bigger? We were talking about this before. I think why are people sleeping on Jasmine? I don't know. I really don't know. There's this amazing. I think I know what it is. Yeah. It's someone who's like not a big like a big stand. Like it's because like her. <laughs> okay. I think her songs. A lot of them are not like singles. They're like out. Al- their their oh. album quality songs and mm. i think that's why like it's, she didn't i don't think she's had a lot of breakout singles i think that's, that's a good point it. that's a really good point mm-hmm. oh man okay wait wait about to set this off again i'm about to do it again not forget us to do an intro welcome back to two save queens one of the few places in the posphere where you can hear a conversation about politics dick jasmine master <laughs> jasmine i was gonna say jasmine masters jasmine sullivan <laughs> Also talk about Drag Race. Um, I'm your hostess, Malachi. I'm joined by Ms. Devereaux. How are you, sis? Well, girl, I am doing great, sis. Cause let me tell you why, though. Because I am honestly excited to have a girl that we know from Twitter on in real life. <laughs> because it feels like we're, like, stands of this girl. We're, like, we're, we're stands of her. Like, she's, like, our own activist version of a Kardashian. Like, she's so famous to us. And, like, 
it's like we actually have her on the show and we're like finally we have an like someone that we both stand on is like, oh, okay you know what i mean not that we we're don't not, stand our past guests but we're like, gonna talk about the guests only one no, of us stands no, or, okay, no. well okay. like there we have had some guests where it's like one of us was excited but like this is actually a guest <laughs> where we're like both excited like Fair. and that's I'm I'm in, I'm loving it, girl. So I'm loving. Yes, it. girl. We are um, um hitting all our intersectional um boxes. We have our first white guest, our first Jewish guest, one of the cutest boys on political Twitter, organizer, activist. I would say progressive thought leader. She's already blushing, turning shy. <laughs> Jason Rosenberg is on to save Queens. Ow! <laughs> oh my gosh! You both hyped me up. It was too much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. No, of course. I mean, that was kind of our intro for you, but I mean, I feel free to like talk about your own words, how you kind of see yourself and other than just being a Jasmine Sullivan fan. Yeah, I mean, I I like to think of someone who is, you know, trying to do some good, but caring and, uh, Mm. you know, obviously some pop culture stuff in between, but all in all, just, you know, just trying to do right i don't know <laughs> we were talking miss me and miss malachi were talking before the show like how some girls are like so famous to us like but we wonder we don't know how famous they are to the world at large like you're a girl who's mm. like super famous to us because like we literally like w- look at your tweets pretty much every single day and like follow you on social media every single day and so we were just wondering like oh do our friends know you know miss jason rosenberg you know do you know do this girl do our listeners or how many i'm sure some of them are going to be familiar with you but i'm wondering if like you know kind of like tell us a little bit about some of the advocacy that you've been involved with over time especially for the gen z girls act up because i think like Mm -hmm. you know a lot of us think of act up as like that organization from the 80s and the 90s but you you're still doing work with act up like right now so just tell us about a little bit about your advocacy generally yeah Mm. it's interesting because i feel like i was always involved in advocacy work whether you know it came from high school college etc but i think a lot of uh like the radicalization of my politic came from act up and was learned through act up and a lot of the veterans that came from act up so um you know who are some of those veterans if you can name names who are yeah. who are some of those veterans that that yeah inspired you i mean um it could range from katrina haslip to um to my friend and mentor eric sawyer to Sarah Schulman, who has, you know, a really big inventory of the oral history project, um, which is now Mm. kind of textualized through Let the Record Show, which is a really great introduction, but a really expansive one, um, which I recommend. And she also has um, United in Anger, uh, which is a documentary she did with Jim Hubbard. So there's a really, there's, you know, a select works that are, that you could find um, about ACT UP. But I think what most people don't know is that ACT UP still meets every Monday um, at 7 p.m. We meet virtually, uh, but typically we'd be at the LGBT Center uh, in Chelsea. Um, But yeah, I think think a lot of people think of ACT UP as some relic of history um, that we we Mm -hmm. reference, Mm -hmm. but it's not thinking about, you know, the ongoing ebbs and flows that do happen in any organizing space, but um, is definitely part of you know, act up like it 
it doesn't always have that vibrant 50 person membership but there's always work that's happening and we we even see that with recently with act up boston which is now active and working on a lot of housing issues for instance so that that mm-hmm. is that is like how act up has worked and is working um and it's all about you know what people are in the space what people bring to the space and you know the work will always be there unfortunately but that's that's why it exists well some of the young girls may not even know like act up was i mean very much so a prominent uh hiv and aids you know organization that basically demanded healthcare and you know rights to medication and studies and you know, acted against pharma companies in, Mm -hmm. you know, the core part of the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s and the 90s. And you'll see some of the, you know, you can go and Google uh, some of the major, you know, activism that they did in that era. I mean, I remember as a little boy watching on TV and seeing on the news act up protests, like bodies on the ground kind of thing Mm -hmm. in the 90s. And so that's what, you know, that's part of the legacy of act up, but I'm sure they're, they're much more than that to like even to this day because i know the activism the act of you know advocacy has probably changed right in some capacity in terms of the things that you're fighting for or fighting against right i mean i think i think that's the mission that has always been though is like how do we protect people living with hiv how do we demand healthcare for all like when we think about medicare for all single single payer healthcare those were ideas that were kind of foundational to act up and Mm -hmm. um you know people think that oh these are all new ideas but no these were existing ideas that came through the large and deep history of act up is how do we fight systemic change through through an epidemic and you know when we think of the vaccines Mm. right now when we think of you know new oral therapies that are happening as we speak for people who are who are COVID positive, those are all happening because of active veterans and people living with HIV and people living with AIDS that fought um, to the death to make these, you know, possible. And that, and we still see that today. You know, I, I feel like you also can't talk about ACTA without talking about Larry Kramer and just was curious about like your thoughts. Cause I mean, we lost her. I mean, last year i think right 20 wait what year is this 2021 2020 um i think no yeah actually just was curious 2020 yeah yeah it feels it feels so (laughs) like i can't believe like all george floyd all that was still only like well not last summer but the summer of last year like it feels like it's been god years um but just curious uh what how you kind of felt about like um his legacy and things like that especially we were talking about um sylvia rivera for um latinx heritage month a couple episodes ago and obviously sylvia had you know their own experiences in history especially with a lot of the um very white queer or white gay and i don't even take the queer label organizations back then so i was just curious about your thoughts on larry and just you know how the evolution of the organization yeah no you brought up a good point about you know the timeline of things but larry's death actually came at the cusp as you mentioned of george floyd's death and the uprisings after Mm -hmm. Because I think that was maybe day two of George Floyd's protest, and then his death came. So right. it's almost as if like, I think it had like May twenty seventh or something like that. Right, so exactly. Like, George Floyd was over Labor Day. 
Yeah. Probably, wait, Memorial May twenty fifth. He died. He got killed on my birthday. On May. That's how I <laughs> never know. forget. I'll never forget that day. Yeah. Oof. I'll never forget it. It was the worst birthday I'd ever had prior to that. <laughs> Imagine. And then, and then George Floyd got killed that day too. So it was just oh, it was a terrible, terrible day. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I'm so sorry. Um, and so yeah. In some yeah. in terms of Larry Kramer's legacy, what do you th- you know, Jason? What do you have to say about about that? It's like interesting. Larry has. You know, a very complex and nuanced legacy because, in one hand, he was able to make people talk about AIDS because of his rage, and, mm-hmm. and he was able to galvanize so many people to stand up and use direct action for good. But then he also has this other side, too, where um, he also used a lot of uh, tactics of shame and, 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 uh, which. Mm-hmm often stigmatize our own community in many ways of i mean he was against prep right exactly he, he kind of came yeah. out against prep like in the last few years of his life unfortunately you know did he say what because it would encourage us to basically go back to our old the old sexual yeah, behavior like, of like having condomless sex yeah and... if you look on youtube um i was also a co-organizer of the 2019 queer liberation march and still a reclaimed pride mm-hmm. member but um, that was our that was the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, and so you know it was a non corporate non cop pride that was grassroots driven. But you know we had as opposed to as, the traditional exactly. pride, which often does involve that cops was commodified and, and, Bank, and Bank of America, <laughs> and you know an NYPD like band like oof yes girl <laughs> they're in the parade. The and that? that is so <laughs> antithetical. That is so antithetical to pride. I I've, I always found that to be antithetical to pride. Like I don't having cops marching dressed as cops I, and at pride. I'm like girl, no no I don't like, <laughs> like just get the cuffs. You don't need to wear the whole uniform. Exactly. <laughs> no. <Go ahead>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, that was his last like large speech. And I remember it so well, because a lot of us were on stage with him. And he, you know, he he was like saying these words that were like, you know, why are, why is the gay community sex fueled, drug fueled, etc. on the apps? And, you know, I, I think that's like the troubled legacy of Larry is that he did a lot of good, but he also uh, left a lot of, you know, troubled stigma that, you know, mm. it is prevalent in our community, which you will even find on the apps, um, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing. I think mm-hmm. he he did a lot of good, but he also, you know, we have to look at it very layered. That's the thing. A lot of our yeah. a lot of our figures like come with baggage so <laughs> oh honey, yeah i think too <laughs> like one of the things that always um one of the things that i always found interesting too is like he um one of the things that he came out against um is wasn't just prep but also was oh my gosh i'm blanking right now that i was really really shocked oh well he was very much like in the fight on porn like against the move to bareback porn so yeah. That was like one of the fights I think that he and I kind of understood that one. But then I also was like, it was really interesting to see like how, you know, he was gaining reputation in that community for being very anti anti sex and anti. um, And that's just I don't know. But I I I, kind of understood him as an OG, like where he was coming from. And yet I also understood that he wasn't 
kind of adapting to new the new science and the new you know the new understanding the real reality of the behavior that you know people i mean the thing is like you know we would know it because we're up this year but people were still having condomless sex (laughs) with that you know before prep like it was still happening and people weren't getting tested and you know in some ways prep has taken away so much anxiety and has helped to i think people for having safer sex because it's like they were going to have sex without condoms either way so a certain proportion of our community i think i think too is you know a lot of there's there's a lot of um what is the word like conflict i guess um with aids Mm. activists about using Mm. harm reduction and when you actually think about prep Mm. as some revolutionary tool like that is a tool of harm reduction it is meeting people where they're at to be like look we know you're having condomless sex and that is okay and that's why we have prep that if you're in a situation you don't have a condom or you know you're doing sex work you don't have access to a condom that this is why we have tools like prep is to meet people where they're at and say, Mm -hmm. there's no judgment, there's no stigma, there's no shame. Like, we are going to find tools and resources to make sure that people are living healthy, but also, um, you know, being able to live freely. Because I think that's like, Mm -hmm. you know, us as queer people, like, we have always had to limit ourselves and, like, what gifted mm-hmm. us by science and by activists that brought us here that we could kind of live freely. Cause I think a lot of people and have sex yeah. that the same sex that everyone else has. Like, you know, this has been behavior that people like to have sex. People want to have sex. And some people don't feel comfortable. I don't like to have sex with, you know, plastic between them. Right. I think that was like a big mm-hmm. controversial <laughs> conversation that I got into during you know, the height of the COVID pandemic is that, yeah, you know, yes. that shame actually doesn't curve behavior or limit it. It actually will um, hide it. So then therefore mm-hmm. people won't be honest about what they're doing. And when we mm-hmm. think about how we survived as a queer community in the early days of the epidemic, we had tools like how to have sex during an epidemic. This was even before ACT UP. This was like, 1983 by Michael Cowan and Richard Berkowitz saying, look, we don't have the tools and resources yet to know how HIV actually exists in our bodies. But what we do know is how to, you know, navigate sex and still be able to, Mm. um, to thrive in a really threatening and fearful time. And that's what we had to do then. And that's hopefully what we're still learning to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, it's interesting you brought that up because I actually, I was following you closely, like toward the end of 2020, when like, you know, there was groups of, of queer people going to Puerto Vallarta and Rio de Janeiro and the Twitterverse was you know, taking what was what was oh, that Instagram page? Oh, gays um, over COVID. Gays yeah. over COVID, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you and they were like coming hard at some of those girls. And you actually uh, heavily pushed back against the gays over COVID, uh, you know, accounts and the movement, Jason, because you you were talking about how shame doesn't really work, right? And you were, I remember Absolutely, that actively. Yeah. And so, what what does work? Like, what do you what does work in cases like that where you know that these 
the thing the thing was they were saying is that these that these queens were going to come back and bring a bunch of COVID back into wherever communities they were living in, in West Hollywood and in Chelsea and Hell's Kitchen and, and, you know, Boys Town, Chicago, and that they were going to increase the rates in their local communities. And so that was, I mean, I understood where gays over COVID and those other accounts were coming from. What is your pushback to them? Uh, my biggest and like my biggest first and foremost pushback with accounts like that is, is exactly what we saw is um we saw like that account tipping off the cops about like different parties that were happening and what we've mm-hmm. learned through HIV criminalization and Hep C criminalization for instance is that criminalization does not actually help curb transmissions it actually helps fuel it and spike it and mm. who does that hurt it hurts our more vulnerable low income black and brown communities that have been always targeted and surveilled by police surveillance. So that is what I, that is my first and foremost gut reaction when I see accounts like that is Mm -hmm. how stigma and shame can, you know, eventually materialize into actual policy that will hurt and harm people because it was COVID was already hurting and harming um, vulnerable communities. And what is criminalization going to do? Hurt and harm those same communities. So that is kind of what my gut instinct is. Obviously, there's a lot of nuance and conversation that has to be had through those. That is that, you know, shame turns into stigma, which turns into criminalization, etc. But that's that's kind of what the gut and the meat of it all is, is that, you know, our country has always turned to criminalization as to um, modify and curb health behaviors and we know for a fact that that doesn't work and so what does work you're saying is harm reduction so Absolutely. like if yeah. people are yeah that's like what you were proposing versus like like stigma and shaming and criminalization obviously yeah it's risk reduction it's like figuring out um you know what works for you because i think that's honestly the biggest failure of our government response is not using harm reduction as a tool to say like, okay, here's a resource book on what, you know, what you can do. And these are options of what you can do in a time that is so limiting. Um, because we know that abstinence, you know, we always think of abstinence as like, um, like a sex keyword, but it's also like used as any type of health behavior, whether it's drug use or any type of health behavior. So abstinence is not, does not always work, especially for um, mm. communities that need like social interaction. Like we we can't survive without social interaction or even sometimes intimate um, interactions with people. So like, how do we figure that out? And um, Dr. Dimitri Delasclis, I can never pronounce his last name, so apologize, Dimitri. But mm-hmm. he um, wrote with the he he now works at the CDC in Atlanta, but before he worked at the DOH here and wrote, you know, the DOH had like some radical response on how to have sex during COVID. And we, not many cities did that, but he did. And it was such a, you know, profound and useful tool that, like I said, dates back to the beginning of the AIDS epidemic of how do we meet communities where they are and how do we survive during a really fearful, um, Mm. and, you know, 
really mournful time because how how are people even mourning during this time so mm. yeah and i and i think also yeah, it's interesting yeah, I, sorry oh sorry go ahead no, I was just gonna say I I remember one of seeing those articles at least about like the return of glory holes as one of those <laughs> ways of like you know long saying, but it's yeah, like interesting. Yeah. It was like the media covering it, but it wasn't like you know something from like you know your local health center like hey girl, there's a glory hole down the street. That's the way to do it. <laughs> Don't go to that party, that secret warehouse party. Yeah. Um, what were you gonna say? No, I think it, and it's just like making sure our education and resources are accessible as possible. Um, that is kind of. Mm-hmm. The main thing that even in ACT UP we do too is that knowledge is power. And how do we put more of that knowledge into the hands of the people? Um, and I think like the biggest thing for me too, um, and then, <laughs> I mean, we could talk about gays over COVID <laughs> like the whole time. But, yeah. but I mean, I think the biggest thing for me was like when they were on the Today Show and um they kind of oh my god they were on the today yeah. show it's mean been on the today show yeah <laughs> and i was like okay so the, the nation is gonna look at queer people as some reckless like types of people that cannot stop themselves from partying from you know having you know again these like very kramer-esque like words but these drug-fueled sex-fueled parties yeah. like and that that's how stigma just like you know materializes and continues is through these narratives and it is i don't know and it's actually it's interesting because in providence last summer you know during the beginning of the delta variant breakout it was actually queer people who were the most cooperative with local public health authorities to in helping to trace you know and trace like do contact tracing and and understanding like you know how that the Delta variant was even starting to spread in the U.S. So mm-hmm. they were, you know, so it's just kind of the opposite that queer people were actually very instrumental in public health uh, this past summer. Absolutely. But, um, yeah. you know, one of the things I I definitely want to bring up, too, is like in, in terms of summer, particularly that summer of 2020, you know, your June 2nd experience, because that, that's actually I think whereas Miss Malachi was intimately familiar with you prior, I think that's how I uh, became very familiar with you is through that experience on June 2nd, 2020, when you were arrested, you know, at a Black Lives Matter protest, you know, in downtown Manhattan or in lower Manhattan, I think even close to near the Stonewall, uh, the original Stonewall bar in and with many other queer and trans people protesting, you know, the murder of George Floyd and on behalf of Black Lives Matter. And you were arrested in brutalized by the nypd so can you just kind of tell the the listeners about your experience with that because i think that's how if people google you right now that's one of the first things that's going to come up of course yeah so so i think i think um you know one of the main things is that when we were protesting that day that was actually um for i mean obviously our uh our movement was kind of catalyzed by George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor's murder. Mm -hmm. But that, um, that protest specifically was actually for black trans people that were either, Mm. that were either, um, you know, that had violence against them, which was Nina pop Mm -hmm. or by the police, which was Tony McDade that year. So Mm -hmm. when we, you know, mobilized together that day. 
and that was through the Queer Empowerment Detainee Project, I believe. Um, that was because mm-hmm. Tony McDade's name was not flooding the streets of Manhattan. That so mm-hmm. as as a community, um, that group specifically said we need to come together and flood the streets with Tony's name, and that's what what we did that day. But what we were met with was De Blasio's. Um, oh, sorry. There's a siren. No, no. Yes, keep I mean, going. you're that, in New York, right? Yeah. <laughs> In that New York life, all, all through the early days of the pandemic, you can hear so many ambulances on our recordings. So, oh yeah, no, it's no. it's totally normal. Yeah, okay. No, <laughs> Say it's totally normal. It's not normal. <laughs> well, normal so, for Tuesday Queens. Are yo <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, city girls just living in life. Exactly. Sorry, go ahead, Jason. Um, but but yeah, um, but yeah, we were met with De Blasio's curfew, um, which was nine p.m. Uh, for the day before and then that day and i believe the day after as well as three nights um Mm -hmm. and those three nights were actually probably um three of the most um heaviest uh police violence Mm -hmm. uh, nights Mm -hmm. so um which is interesting because every single day before june 2nd um I i was out protesting so when we had the first curfew and we broke that curfew and um, we actually were not met with a lot of resistance by the police. Like I was like, Oh, okay, cool. So then we're going to be cool these next few days. But little did I know, like, no, the NYPD, like, you know, what do you think changed? Was it just like, they wanted to exert their power. That reminder of like, we are, we, you know, we're not like you we are the law we are the enforcement yeah despite your rights as a citizen actually yeah we trump those it is absolutely like the nypd especially the nypd union like exerting and abusing their power to any lengths they can Mm. and we're seeing that as they as they currently are doing yeah even even as we see they're currently talking in the the well i I mean we'll save it we'll save it yeah (laughs) well you know i'm like it's weird because honestly it's funny because i'm known on this show as like i'm not i'm not really a moderate i'm definitely more of a liberal girl like (laughs) miss malachi is the progressive girl and i'm more like liberal but i where i'm kind of radical is like I'm very um, anti-police. I just don't kill the cops. No, no, no. I, don't get it. Don't have the feds on our tail, ho. Like, but no. I mean, I'm very anti- because I I see their continued abuse of power, like over the decades, and their you know, and this is an example of that because on June second, twenty twenty, like you were, you had your arm broken, you had yeah. to have staples put into your head. Like, if you look at the pictures. Um, I mean, you were heavily bloodied and all you were doing was peaceful protesting, you know, and we saw those images in 2020 in New York, in Los Angeles, in, you know, the brutalization. And I, I think in L.A. I saw a video of the police like flipping around in an SUV and shooting uh, oh, yes. blanks or something at peaceful People protesters. We saw yeah. the incident in Buffalo, New York with the, um, the older, with man, the elder yeah. gentleman. Ooh. It was just... They're Utterly the cops man, are by the way. <laughs> out of fucking control in this goddamn country. They're out of fucking control. And so, you know, and now New York City has a cop mayor. There's a cop mayor in New exactly. York, you know, yeah. and and so, you know, I and then we see like in on the ballot in Minneapolis, in other cities, we just seeing a lot of 
movement yeah, yes, away Minneapolis from failed um right for oh. in terms of like reimagining the police there in Minneapolis from going from police to a public safety initiative and mm-hmm. we're seeing kind of these you know these defeats at various levels between a cop in charge of New York City now as a mayor and then the ballot initiative in Minneapolis and what do you see how do we move forward as a movement in terms of reimagining public safety in this country and getting rid of like you know the slave catcher police system that we currently have ooh. and I, ooh. yeah exactly I, I easy think, question <laughs> yeah yeah very loaded question but i i think it's one of those where like much like my conversation or our conversation earlier about harm reduction is it's kind of like how do we reimagine a, a world where we're not limited to criminalization and policing and jailing mm-hmm. like how do we mm-hmm. imagine a world of abolition i think that is the creativity needed to actually um have communities thrive and shine um and survive but i guess to add some guess to add some nuance to that because i think some of these conversations around the pushback has been the ways republicans have pulled out the playbook of like crime and fear and stoked up you know the suburban fear and and seeing that kind of like you know i feel like where the imagination ends is where people are like but what about my kids but what about my neighborhoods and you know but no i need the police here i need them to feel safe um and seeing the ways in which I think it, it goes back to that thing about democratic messaging, leftist messaging. Well, I, don't, I think leftist messaging is different from democrat messaging, but just the ways in which not having a way to talk about some of those things can't even get to the imagination because people are too afraid. So until you're just ceding this conversation to the right and to Republicans and to be like, well, we're the party of law enforcement and we're going to keep you safe. And New York Times is telling me that the crime rates are rising when it's like, well, it's not like we're back in the 90s. Like, rising to what extent and rising during a pandemic where everyone was without a job so yeah i feel like i i hear what you're saying but i also feel like there's just the they're stoking those fires and i think hitting that button i think that's even making it hard to even get to that good conversation that's necessary yeah i think people are having some of those pitfalls um even recently with the election in buffalo um Mm -hmm. with india wallen Mm -hmm. because i think you know us or, you know, how we like to think of people who, you know, are thinking progressively, but we always end up voting Democrat is like, wait, so we were all told to vote blue no matter who, but then we have this write-in ballot, which undermines the primary process where India Walton was successfully primaried um, in the election and she should have won. Um so, like, what does that actually look like? Like, how do we actually think beyond primaries? How do we think beyond a two-party system? How do we actually create the change that we want to see in the world? And I think that's part mm. of the process, and we're seeing it play out, for better or worse, to be honest. I think there is a solution at the congressional level. Like, there is a way that progressives could actually start running, depending on the district, in in their own party, and then caucus with the democrats but also not vote in line with the democrats in you know on issues where they're opposed to you know like corporatist 
uh, democratic policy. So I think there there is a way forward, but it but it involves a lot of complexity. It's not a simple like form a third party right. because obviously yeah. at the presidential level, a third party is not going to work in the current system. But it could work at the congressional level. It could work at the local levels. Like there are ways, you know, to move forward. I think for sure. Yeah. So Jason, so you know, kind of segueing into something that I always found to be very interesting is um i i grew up in an area that was or i was born to an area that was a predominantly like jewish area in detroit and became like kind of like a black elite area of the city you know when my grandmother bought her house from um a jewish doctor in 1950 and it was just interesting because there was this core like you know in the civil rights movement there was there was these incredible black jewish relationships you know and and thinking about even like mississippi in 1964 where you had you know the trio of james cheney and andrew goodman and michael schwerner all you know murdered together while fighting for you know black civil rights in mississippi and and registering voters there mm-hmm. and black support of naacp and so many initiatives and we've kind of seen a splintering of black Jewish relations in recent decades. Um, and I don't know whether it's like the move towards, you know, the, in the, in the Jewish community, a move towards, you know, more right-wing Zionism or in the black community, a move towards, you know, like nation of Islam politics and, and some, you know, anti-Semitic rhetoric. But what, what do you think is causing the schasm in, in black and Jewish relations that didn't exist 50, 60 years ago? I think yeah. I think the problem um, that we're seeing and have seen for decades is that um, the the only Jewish experience that has been centered is the Ashkenazi Jewish experience, and that's predominantly, you know, white uh, European descent uh, experience. So, and that kind of erases that other. Uh, identities in the Jewish community are do not exist and are not there when they are there and have always been there. The Mizrahim community, the black and brown Jewish community, the Latinx community, Jewish community, like they all exist and are part of our non-monolith Jewish community. And, you know, how do we reclaim centering those narratives and how do we grapple with the racist and discriminatory behaviors that happen in our Jewish communities. And that's kind of what mm-hmm. we're seeing. And I think people are, you know, are facing in the past few years. And we also, you know, a lot of, a lot of it does require nuance, but a lot of it has to do with, as you mentioned, this really dangerous right-wing Zionist, um, uh, you know, mentality that has been, in our Jewish institutions, in our synagogues, etc., and and let, yeah. and we want to clarify that you you are you consider yourself anti-Zionist, or how would you describe yourself in that particular way? Yes, I, I identify as anti-Zionist. Um, okay, yeah, and it definitely you know took a lot of unlearning um, to get there. Well, we should probably also say what is it yeah. to be anti-Zionist. So, so yeah, it's it is um, basically saying that Jewish survival does not does not need um, 
a nation state or a colonial settler mm-hmm. state to survive, that we as community will keep us safe, that we will keep us surviving, and that solidarity will, you know, keep us uh, thousands of years from now. And I think what... So could yeah. one argue if you're like pro-Zionist, are you pro-Israel? Yes, Is that kind correct. Of, are they tied together? Because when you yeah. when you say pro-Israel and pro-Zionist, that means you you um you want to have the state that you know in return uh hurts and harms people that were indigenous to the to the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I think. And, and there's this schism that's developed between the black and Jewish community because then you do also have some black celebrities or black public Oof. figures who kind of come Cube. out and say, Damn. yeah, like Ice Cube, who come out and do say some anti, you know, anti-Semitic rhetoric based where on, comes from. Uh, yeah. So what what do we do about that on the on the black side of the relationship, right? Like, what do we, how do we fight against that on that on that side of things? I think it's just making sure that when that does happen is that our black Jewish siblings are the ones that are doing that dialogue. Like what we've seen Mm. like time and time again is that the same Ashkenazi Jewish white people are having those responses and relationships between those people. And that is not anywhere where that should be happening. Like it should, should be Mm. between um, our black Jewish siblings who I mean, I we obviously don't need to have them always doing that labor and that work, but we take away that experience by just having the Ashkenazi Jewish experience keep leading the way against anti-Semitism. And that's what happens mm-hmm. is that our black Jewish siblings like keep getting erased and keep getting thrown to the side. And that that's why when we, you know, when we define what anti-Semitism is, is that like... It doesn't always require, um, like, anti-Zionism is, is not anti-Semitic. And I think that's what we have to mm. actually mm. understand um, when we have these conversations. Those things get super blurred together. Uh, I remember yeah. Mark Lamont Hill got canceled for just cool. even trying to... Mark Lamont Hill lost us. He I was on some panel and was just trying to even just frame, reframe the conversation around Israel and just completely got taken as like boom you're anti-jewish oh boom like anti-semitic you gotta go you're losing that cnn commentator role (laughs) um and i think part of the reason that happens is right the the jewish identity is being conflated with the israeli identity in many cases globally and i think that those two things are not one in the same right that's Mm -hmm. we have to establish that like a jewish american is not automatically israeli or even necessarily pro-israel in the uh, israel apartheid state like mm-hmm. you know and that because I, I wanted to clarify for jason's identity as an anti-zionist just to make that clear and there are many others you know there are many mm-hmm. other jewish people that in the activist community especially who would also likely consider themselves anti-zionist right yeah um i mean we, that's the thing we have a lot of like right-wing zionist accounts that target and surveil pe- jews that don't agree with Zionist solutions and ideologue. And we see that a lot of our black and brown Jewish siblings are the targets of these really big harassment campaigns. You look at this account, like ads stop anti-Semites, you'll see half of, or more than half of the people that they target on there are actually black and brown Jews. 
And you you think about why we have the schism in the Jewish community of um, discriminatory and racist behaviors because of shit like this, to be honest. Like we're seeing our own community turn on our on our siblings in such a really harmful way and all because of zionism <laughs> so right right and i think yeah i yeah i i i could definitely i've seen that i've seen those lists before like on twitter especially and i noticed that that a lot of the people are actually black and brown and jewish in many cases mm-hmm. who they target so it makes me also just think about like what's happening with the trans conversation or like dave Chappelle, which i don't be yeah, I can't stand that girl. I don't really want to give her more time, but just interesting that, you know, that idea that like for Dave Chappelle when he was doing that stand up that there was like, you know, there was no idea that there are black trans people. Like there is someone who's from the, both those communities and wasn't, right, you know, right. seeing, you know, someone like T.S. Madison going on the breakfast club, which again, those girls wear me out, but still T.S. Madison being like, you know, you can't be and like to be anti-trans is also to be like, I'm black and I'm trans. Like I have these two wars that I'm fighting. And if you are supposed to be black lives matter, I am black. So you should be supporting me. You should, you know, it doesn't, when you're saying you're, you know, what trans people are and this and that, like I am also trans and I am black and you need to see these connections, see that this middle ground I'm embodying and that I am the through line between these two communities and not saying like, Oh, some trans person is just this white, this idea of like, Oh, some white trans person that there is a multitude in the, that identity, especially one that, telling you should be fighting for as well right because i think when folks do that you're erasing existence and that is yes one of the biggest harms that can be done because being 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 anti-trans or anti-lgbtq is being anti-black being anti-semitic is being anti-black exactly yes exactly i'm gonna put that out yeah that's why i mean like there's no liberation without black liberation there's no liberation without trans liberation there's no liberation mm-hmm. um you know etc you could just go on and on so that is what liberation looks like is actually allowing the intersections to not only exist but to celebrate them mm-hmm. so what gives you kind of like in your activism in what you see happening today what really gives you hope um, I was, I was thinking about this past year and like, we were, a lot of us and I'm sure a lot of even others are experiencing such burnout from both COVID, mm-hmm. from daily protests, uh, from police violence, mm-hmm. et cetera. And it's like, how do we replenish our soul and how do we nourish the things that we need to do to keep going? And I think, I think this is like a pivotal moment where we have to, you know, reflect and interrogate, like how, how do we move forward? Um, what worked, what didn't work? And it's actually going back to the drawing table and seeing how Mm -hmm. we could implement change with the things that, that worked, the change that we were able to get. And then where do we have to go from here? And I think that's the yeah, the way forward. Yeah, be on. Oh, sorry. oh, that was it. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. <laughs> um, I was because I was just wanted to be honest that like for me, like it's interesting enough, like I feel like burnout for me is coming from almost like not just the political spectrum, but just our news and media and the way that things are being covered. Just feeling like almost like I'm like a mad person or like I'm a person at loss because I'm like 
is are we really is nothing still going to change like we're technically still in this pandemic and we're still like have we not learned anything are we really not going to change anything as all this fuel like and yes we're seeing some of that with the pushback on like defund the police but just even to have these conversations but just even seeing the same which (laughs) sounds like a total like you know through uh you know old political statement to see the same like bog in our political system and to see the same like churning of wheels and it's like wow even through a a global pandemic that shut down the world we literally still can barely get anything done and i know there are things happening there's conversations happening but still feeling like you know whether you look at global warming or anything like that like it just feels like god this is this has it still doesn't feel like it's happening fast enough um and maybe then that's also you know the idea that you know progress doesn't happen quickly that it takes time to do but i don't know that's where i'm at yeah what do you think about that jason yeah what do you think i don't know i I think i think part of this time has and and i think the general you know times that we live in i think that we've been so just used to loss and i think that has been such a Mm. a crazy fucking thing to grapple with like whether it's Mm -hmm. been the loss of loved ones and families from covid or um you know shootings or police violence etc we're just Mm -hmm. used to hearing just loss and like like why haven't we been able to mourn that loss effectively and like in in any Mm -hmm. real meaningful way like we don't even have a memorial for for victims of covid yet and families who have lost so so many people over covid and that's like a a mm. huge fucking failure because the failure obviously comes from, you know, from government, but yet they're not even, <laughs> you know, creating any tangible memorial. And we, you know, even recently mm. with they did a temporary yeah. one in D.C. I think, but yeah, we yeah, def- went to we that, definitely yeah. need a permanent yeah. memorial. Yeah, you know, that's some that is a failure of government for sure. Yeah, and we're just on the news, we're just used to hearing so much loss. Like even Travis Scott's recent um that I mean that so that's weird. so tragic that there's that could, that could have been prevented, like, well, you know. Should they have stopped the show? But I'm like, eight people eight, if one person like I was listening to someone talking about it, it's like if one person died, you should stop the show. Absolutely. The fact that you don't even think it's worth stopping a show for eight people dying is like we're just so desensitized to loss now. We're like, oh, exactly. It was only eight people. <laughs> oh and, you know, they were yeah. only, you know, crowd surfing a dead body, but you know, it's just, it's crazy how we're just so used to it, you know, mm-hmm. and a couple, a week will go by, so, you know? Yeah. What do you think we could do to kind of make ourselves value each other's lives again? Right. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. black lives, trans lives, you know, concert goer lives, like, you know, uh, elderly lives, like what are we, uh, HIV positive lives? What, how are we going to start to value each other's lives again? Because that's the talking point of the right is we value the right to mm-hmm. life, but what, what can we do more holistically as a community and as a society to start to value life again mm. or value for the first time even, cause not even again, cause we obviously had slavery and genocide. So what, what can we do to to begin starting to value life holistically as a community and society? I think it's just to end the, ne- the neglection of loss is that, you know, when there is a life 
that is lost, especially due to systemic failures, is that we make sure that that life was never neglected and that mm. it, that name will never be forgotten. And I think we tend to forget mm. so many names that have been failed by systemic failures. And how do we, how do we, you know, actually end that neglect? So we have to memorialize those loss to those failures and then correct those mm. failures, right? Part of the exactly. process of yeah. of really of memorializing those victims is to correct those failures, right? And make sure it never happens again. Exactly. Exactly. Ooh. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap it up for today. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that feels good. Yeah. Wow. Um, I think that's going to be our show. I think so. Um Jason, thank you so, so much for coming on and sharing, you know, being vulnerable with us. Cause I know it's, I, I even just thinking about your experiences last summer, like I'm sure, you know, that's not a, having to cast your mind back to that isn't an easy thing, but just even, you know, being vulnerable about your opinion and thoughts and everything really appreciate it. But you just met, met us ho. So you're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> ask me questions. <laughs> And where can um, they where can our where can our listeners follow you, J Row? I love I love that my name is J Row. <laughs> Just tell the girls where they can follow you though. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I mean, no, that ends up being my name everywhere. But um at my name is J Row. So at my name is J R O at Twitter, Instagram. I think that's it. I don't know. Yeah, Maybe there's somewhere yeah. else too. There's some yeah, cute pics on Insta yeah. too for the girls who want to follow. A couple, <laughs> thirst, through. A couple thirst thirsty. traps. A couple of thirst traps. Not thirst. Not entirely, but you know, yeah. marginal thirst. A little traps. outline. A little, yeah. you know, a little glimpse. A little. <laughs> I could do better in that department. So any oh. any tips are welcome. You know. You know. And and a lot of cute and a lot of cute knowledge and information on Twitter. Like yes. very informative Twitter account. I mean, we are stands, me and Miss Malachi. We Aww. and you know, I'm like I said, I'm not even a hyper progressive girl. I should be better, but <laughs> I should do better. But no. God's not through at least yet. I'm learning better through your Twitter account. I really am. Like mm-hmm. I'm like the shaming thing, uh, we re COVID. And in case we over COVID, you really taught me a lot on that issue because I would have been on the wrong side of that issue without you, girl. I really would have. I think I think we're all just, you know, you know, growing with the time. So yeah. I think mm-hmm. we're all a work in progress, and I, I'm not exempt from that. So I'm learning with you, and I thank you so much for sharing this stage with me. So thank you Aww. for allowing this i'm yes. i'm glad that we got to spend this time together yeah well too. thank you jason and you know listeners uh congregation please follow at my name is jero um and we look forward to you know um talking to jason at some point in the future um uh, but in the meantime you know uh give your support throw your support to jason rosenberg we thank you so much for your time again thank you thank you